0: Uh, take your Bibles and let's go now to Genesis. Get to the end of chapter fourteen, the beginning of chapter fifteen. Have you ever done anything that after you did it, you really kind of broke out in a sweat and you thought to yourself, "Oh my star, I cannot believe I survived what I just did." Yesterday, uh, Jeff and I took off and we went up to Atlanta. We met with a couple of pastors up there in um, somewhere north of Atlanta. And there is this, whatever that turnoff of 4, what is it, 480, 490 something, whatever the turnoff is, there's just one little road that turns off to 20 to get on 20 to go to Atlanta. Do y'all know where I'm talking about? 459, 459. And then there's that one road. Well, there was an 18 wheeler. I was in this lane, he was in this lane. Jeff said, "That's the turnoff," and I said, "Hold on!" And I whipped it right <laughs> over that way <laughs> to get to the turnoff. And after I did it, I thought I didn't say anything, but I thought to myself, "I probably scared Jeff." And I said, th- "Well, good. I'm glad I did. You know, I, I'm glad I could do it." He's probably sitting over there, you know, dug in like this. But I thought after I did, I thought that was really dumb. I should have just slowed down and or gone to the next exit or something. But have you ever done something like that and you thought, Phew. well, you get to the end of chapter 14 of Genesis, and I'm telling you, that is exactly what Abraham is thinking. Uh, if you remember, uh, Abraham had gone after four armies of, uh, of four different kingdoms. There were four kings and four kingdoms and four armies that came out of what we know to be today as Iraq. They came across that 800 miles of desert into the Middle East, into the Jordan Valley, there where the Dead Sea is. There were five um, major kingdoms there, uh, fortified cities, kingdoms of people, and those four kings defeated those five kingdoms, of which Sodom was one, Gomorrah was one. And they took off all the people, they took off all the wealth, anything that was worth anything they had captured and they took with them. And along with that, they took Lot. Abraham, who happens to be uh, the kinsman redeemer, uh, is going to have to go now and rescue Lot. He's going to have to go and get him, which he does. So he takes off and he goes after him with 308 18. Isn't it 318? I think that's it. 318 shepherds. That's all he had. He doesn't have green berets. He doesn't have Marines. He doesn't have Navy SEALs. But he's got 318 guys that keep sheep, and somehow he arms them with whatever he had to arm them with, and they go off after four victorious, battle-hardened armies. And somehow in the night, through stealth, but certainly through the power of God, you know God had to intervene in that. Have you ever heard of the Battle of Agincourt in the 1200s when the British fought the French at Agincourt? Henry IV, maybe you get this, we brothers, we band of brothers. You remember from Shakespeare? That was about the Battle at Agincourt, you know. Many a man today lie on his bed sleeping, will forever hate himself because he was not here with us on St. Crispin's Day and fought the battle and won the battle. 5,000 English defeated 36,000 French at the Battle of Agincourt. That was somewhat of what Abraham had done. He had gone now with just these handful of shepherds and in going there defeats these four kingdoms, and he thinks now about what he's done. That's why when you come to chapter 15, you read these words, after these things. After these things, after he went and defeated those four armies, at night, by stealth, no doubt, with the help of God, he thinks to himself, what have I done? What's going to happen now? Uh, these four kingdoms are not going to sit and just let this pass. So I can just imagine here is Abraham in his tent at night. He cannot go to sleep. All he can do is stare at the top of that tent, and everything that he hears outside has to be the army creeping up on him. He's got to be thinking, they have come back. They've surrounded me. The shepherds now are back out with the sheep. They, they're gone. I don't have anybody here to defense me. It's just me. It's just Sarah. It's just the two of us. We're here, nobody else. And I know that they're going to come back. So there is this terror that is after these things, there is this terror that is gripping his life. What have I done? Now, here's the question. Uh, What will God do for me in the midst of my terror, in the midst of my trials, in the midst of my troubles? When I've done something and I know that I am facing a, a, a horrific terror, what is God going to do? Now, do you believe one verse can make a difference? Well, sure it can. I want somebody here, somebody here tonight has one verse that has meant a lot to you in a moment of crisis. Who is it? What is it? What's the verse? Give it to me. Good verse. Somebody else. Great verse. Somebody else? In what time I am afraid, I will trust in him and what time, you know, I learned that in vacation Bible school, and the day my boy called me and had a wreck when he was on the phone with me, I was convinced he had been killed, and the only thing I could think was, is how am I going to call and tell his mama? And uh, he was off up at Liberty. He was in the snow, and he had, I knew what was going on. I could hear what went on, and the phone went dead, and I tried to call him back, and I couldn't get him, and I am telling you, I fell into a dead panic at that moment. And then all of a sudden, I was telling my secretary, call Trey, get Trey to call somebody at Liberty. Y'all get somebody up there. Let's get, and I'm going to try to call. And I fell on my knees at my sofa in my office, in the outer office. I got down on my knees. And as soon as I did, into my mouth came the words, at what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. And in that moment, I regained some composure And I felt like, you know what, God does have this in his hands. And we've all been in those kind of situations. And a verse will make a difference. I am convinced that Abraham was terrified. And I think he was terrified. Melchizedek had gone, he appeared, and then he just disappears. He's there, and then he's gone. The battle is over you know, all of the thrill of victory, now you've got the reality of what has happened. And he's by himself. As I said, all the shepherds are going back out. And so I want you to look at this, and tonight I want you to think about this one verse. That's all I'm gonna do tonight is this first verse of chapter 15. Just to look at it because God can do something in the midst of your terror, in the midst of your troubles, in the midst of your trials, And all it takes is just a verse. Because this verse is just jammed packed. So what's the first thing? The first thing is his word. In the midst of my terror, in the midst of all that I'm going through, in the midst of my fear, what comes? The word of God. Dabar Yahweh, Hayah. There it is right there. There it is for the very first time in the word of God, you read this phrase. The word of the Lord came. Dabar Yahweh Hayah, the word of the Lord came. 1,125 times you read that same phrase in Scripture. All the way from the Old Testament through the New Testament, you read that. Here is the word of God. Is there anything in life that will do more good in the midst of a crisis or a terror or a tragedy than the word of God? Nothing will. Not anything in the world can do anything for you like the Word of God. Uh, New York City Fire Department paramedic instructor, guy by the name of Dave Gill. uh, When 9-11 took place, I want you to listen to what he said. He said, there is a tremendous, this guy's a Christian, and listen to what he says in the aftermath of 9-11. There's a tremendous opportunity to witness people are crying out for the gospel. A lot of people are very fearful. The city of New York is primed right now for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our politicians are actually telling people that the way to handle it is to pray and go to church. You have to know they were terrified. (laughs) Chaplains have free access to go around the city and minister to the people. He said, there is nothing like the word of God in a moment of crisis. And I want to tell you, I found that to be true. Uh, Just two months after 9-11, Debbie and I were in New York, uh, and we had gone up, and I was visiting with a good friend of mine by the name of Tom Maharis, who is at a church in, um, what is it, White Plains up there, that section of the city? Uh, White Plains, the section of the city. used to be the cocaine capital of America, he has a church right in the heart of it, and uh, he has a church there, he has a school there, we were, we were there, I was ministering to him, um, going to see him, and then he took, Deb and myself, we had taken up gloves and socks uh, for the construction workers. They were then down in the hole, uh, cleaning the hole out where the two buildings had stood, So we went down there. We got there behind the gate. They told them that uh, there's a pastor and his wife here. He's got some things for him. They said, bring him down. So they took us down into the hole uh, where all of that work was going on. They put us in the middle of that thing. I can remember it like it was yesterday. And uh, somebody hollered out for everybody. All the equipment turned off. Every one of those big, burly union construction workers in New York City climbed down off of all of that equipment, and they walked over, and they circled the two of us. And we started handing them socks, and we started giving them gloves, and they were appreciative of that, and then I began to talk to them. I started sharing with them. And uh, I told them, I said, you know what? We could not save the people who died here, but the fact is there is someone who can save you, and his name is Jesus. And so I shared with them the gospel, and then I said, would you guys uh, like for me to pray for you? And all of them in unison, at one time, they took their hard hats off, and they all said, yes, sir, we sure would. And those big old men joined hands, And I'm down in this hole, Debbie and I are down in this hole with them and they've surrounded us and I led them in prayer. And um, I don't know what the gospel did that day, but I shared the gospel as best I could in the time that I had in that place. And I want to tell you something. It is amazing to me that big, old, burly, hardened men in a moment of crisis like that, they want to hear a word from God. So here's Abraham, and here he is in this crisis and in this situation, and the word of God comes to him. Don't miss that. The word of the Lord came. Now watch this. It came to him personally. Look at the second thing that's said here. It It came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear. Now I can't tell you how many times that's used in Scripture. It's well over 300 times probably far more than that, that you find those words, do not fear. There is no need for you to be afraid. God said that, listen, God said that to, God said that to Moses and the children of Israel at the Red Sea when he told them to be safe. Do not be afraid, stand still, and you'll see the salvation of the Lord this day. He said that to Joseph. <laughs> over and over he said that to Joseph. He said it to David. He said it to Mary. He said it to Joseph in the New Testament. Mary's betrothed husband. He said it to them. He said it to Peter. He said it to Paul. He said it to John on the Isle of Patmos. Do not be afraid. Over and over, from one end of Scripture to the other, he comes with his word, and he says this, do not be afraid. And he makes it personal there. It came to Abram. You can say tonight, to you, to me, To all of us, the Word of God comes to us and it says, do not be afraid. I don't know who needs to hear that tonight, but somebody does. Um, I know this is the next chapter, and I'm just preaching through this expositionally. I'm looking at each chapter and the words and the verses here, but somebody here needs to know this. Do not be afraid. The Word of God comes to you personally and says, do not be afraid. God is... God's word is here for you. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. In the midst of whatever your crisis or your terror or your emergency, the word of God is here and the word of God says, do not be afraid. Amen. Now look at the second thing. Here's his promise. He comes and he's going to give a promise. God gives his word and in his word he gives his promise. And the first thing is this, I am a shield to you. I'm your protection. If you go to, if you go to Psalm 3, I love that song that Brooklyn does. Thou, O Lord, art, art a shield for me, the glory and the lifter of my head. Here it is, Psalm 3, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, around me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. My head is down in dejection. My head is down in defeat. Yet you lift my head up, and you're my protection. You're the shield around me. That's exactly what he's saying to Abraham right there. And the fact of the matter is, that's true. Now, let me, let me just show you this in Scripture. Put your finger right there in Genesis chapter 15. And look, go to Job chapter 1. You know where I'm headed, Job chapter 1. It's... Uh, It's so well known, you know that uh, the sons of God were coming up to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also. And the Lord said, chapter one, verse seven, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth, walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on earth, blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Now listen to what Satan says. He says, the, then Satan answered the Lord, and he said, do you think Job fears you for nothing? Now, come on. He says. now, come on. You and I both know what's going on here. Have you not made, look at verse 10, have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you ever stopped to think that God puts a hedge around you? And he not only puts a hedge around you, he puts a hedge around all that you've got. All that you have, he's put a hedge around. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions, you've increased his possessions, have increased in the land, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he'll surely curse you to your face. God says, have at it. Go ahead. You do it. You just can't touch him. Touch all that he's got, but you just can't touch him. Well, you know how that turned out. He didn't curse God. In fact, he blessed God. He, he essentially said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, that just didn't work out real well for the devil. And uh, when things don't work out from him, for him, you just don't hear anything about it. He doesn't show back up and say, hey, God, you were right. He's not going to do that. But you get to chapter 2, and in chapter 2, he's going to come back. Now, did you ever... N- Think about this and notice God does not dispute Satan here. He doesn't say, no, I haven't done that. And the reason why God didn't say I haven't done that is because God does that for his people. He he does put a hedge about us. Now you get to chapter 2. The same thing's happening again. All the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan slips in. And uh, the Lord said to Satan, hey, devil, have you seen my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on earth, blameless, upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. Now, the Lord's digging at him right here. He still holds fast, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yet all that a man has, he'll give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bones and his flesh and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said, okay, you go ahead, you do it. You just can't take his life. Isn't that interesting? Now, did you notice in both cases, Satan says to the Lord, you put forth your hand and take away what he has. And then he comes in chapter two and he says, you put forth your hand and you touch him. You do it. You know why? Because Satan cannot touch a child of God without God's permission. Now you need to remember that. He can't do it. So whatever goes on in your life has to pass through the care of God's hands before it ever gets to you. God does put a hedge about his people's lives. God put a hedge around Job's life and here he comes and he's saying here to Abraham, he's saying, listen, I am a shield about you. I am your shield, I am your hedge of protection, I protect you, I keep you. Listen, let me take you over to Matthew for just a moment and let me show you something in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, there's an interesting little verse there where Jesus talks about angels. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold or see or watch the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, I don't know any other way to take that than that Jesus is exposing something in the invisible unseen dimension and he says that there are angels for children. In fact, I think every one of us have an angel. I really do. I believe that. Now, I do not worship angels. I've never even talked to an angel. I've never said, oh, protective angel. I'm going straight to the top because Jesus gave me that ability to do that, huh? But let me show you something. Now, I know I'm using a lot of Scripture. People say, well, you, take too, you go to too much Scripture. Well, I could come in here with Time Magazine, I guess. We could, we could talk out of that a little bit. Let me get you back over here to Genesis chapter 28. I want you to listen to something, because Jacob saw these angels. He saw angels and, um, in a place that he called Bethel, Genesis chapter 28, and he comes down in verse 12, and he says this, he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God, now notice, notice, the, notice the order here. The angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, when I go from that verse in Matthew chapter 18 Uh, where I am told by Jesus that these children's angel beholds the face of the Father, and I come back and I pick this up here where it speaks of these angels of God ascending. That is, they did not come down from heaven to earth and then go back up, but they were on earth and they went up to heaven and they came back. They are ascending up with information for heaven, and descending back down to carry it out. Now you say, well, how do you know that? Well, (laughs) the word order there tells me that, but look at Hebrews chapter 1 and listen to verse 14. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 gives you an interesting insight to this whole thing. Peter in Acts chapter 12 has an angel that comes to care for him. Paul in Acts chapter 27 has an angel that comes to care for him. Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 speaks of the fact that churches have angels. And Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits, these angels, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now, who is that? That's you. That's you. That's you. So when God comes all the way back here in Genesis chapter 15, and he says now to Abram, I am your shield, he is coming to say, I am the God who is able to protect you. I'm able to care for you. I'm able to protect you. I'm able to watch over you. You know, we live in a troubled day. Um, We live in a day full of problems. You know, I can remember so well in 89 when the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Empire broke apart. Everybody thought America now is really the only superpower left in the earth and we are so pure and righteous here in America that uh, we will enter into a period of just world domination and we will keep peace and, and things will be... We will enter into a period of just calm and peace uh, like the world has never seen before. And listen, I remember commentators talking about that on television. And then you started having not major governments prop up, but you had terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda Pop, uh, pop up. And then you had ISIS pop up. And then you've got this little North Korean running around and he can't ever make up his mind what he's going to do. And you've got that situation there. And you've got Iran who's back making, you know, nuclear fission material. And you've got all these issues and all these things. And you kind of think to yourself, maybe it was better when it was the United States and the Soviet Union, all this other stuff was, you know, just kind of went away. But you've got all kinds of problems in life you just take that out of the way. What, what, do you, what kind of problems do you have when you have a little boy who plays in the backyard and there's a spider that bites him? We live in a, we live in a very dangerous world. You've got one little cell in your body that mutates in a weird way and, and nothing goes off, no sirens go off, no lights go off, and then all of a sudden you've got something that you don't know how in the world anybody's gonna handle it. What do you do? You go back to the Word of God, where the Word of God says this, I am your shield. I'm your shield. Don't be afraid. The Word of the Lord came to, you put your name in there, do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your protection. Now do you believe that? Is that part of your life? What do you depend on, honestly, in all honesty, what do you depend on for your protection in life? What do you depend on to protect all these grandkids? What do you depend on to protect all these grandkids? What can you do? God's word says, "Don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm going to protect you." Now that's not just personal. Let me tell you that's corporate as well. You remember I just told you, you can go go read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 and you'll see where it speaks of churches having angels. Folks, we don't need to be afraid of anything at this church. You know, going through the process that we're going through with Oxano, I've learned a lot about your history that some of you may not even be aware of. I've learned, I know that there are things in the past that have been hurtful, things in the past that have caused us to struggle, things in the past that have become impediments to us in the present. And I just want to tell you this, we're going to have to put the past in the past. And work in the present and trust God for the future. God comes and God says, listen, the word of the Lord comes. And the word of the Lord says to us, Valleydale, do not be afraid. I am your shield. Now look at the last thing that he's going to come. He's going to say this to him. He's going to say, I'm going to bless you. Your reward shall be very great. Now there's a future tense to it. Now, Abraham left Ur when he was 75 years old. He left Ur at 75. By the time you get to the 15th chapter of Genesis, he's probably about 85 years of age, and God has promised him two things that have not happened as of yet. From 75 to 85, 10 years, God said, one, I'm going to give you a son, and two, I'm going to give you all this land. And neither one of those things has happened at this point, and I'm not so sure that Abraham has not gone off somewhere and sat down and thought to himself and said, you know what, things aren't working out the way I thought they would work out. You know, God hasn't done the two things that he said he was going to do, not the 2,000 things, just two things that I've asked or that he's promised me, and neither one of them have come about and I'm just not so sure that it pays off to follow the Lord. Now let me tell you something, we ask those questions, if we're honest with ourselves, we ask that question, and as a church we'll ask that question. Do you know, let me tell you something, everything that God asks you to do by faith, the world is gonna look at you and say, that's crazy, it will not work. Every single thing. Well, I'm going to trust God to save me from my sins and take me to heaven when I die. And I do that by faith. And the world looks and says, that's a crutch. That's a crock. None of that works. It's just because you are weak. It's just because you are fearful. It's just because you are immature. You you don't know any better. Everything that God asks you to do by faith, the world looks at you and says, that's just crazy, you can't do it. It's not gonna work. Satan will get in a church and he'll convince people of the same thing in the church. The Word of God tells us clearly, you are to be my witnesses. We all say, I am to share Jesus Christ. That is exactly what you're about. Are you doing that? Well, no, I can't, I can't do that. Well, now, wait a minute. You just said that's what God said to do. Yeah, but, I, but that's not me. I can't do that. Well, then you don't believe him. Oh, yeah, I believe him, but I just can't do that. And a church will do the same thing. A church will get to the place where it convinces itself we cannot fulfill God's mission in this place. We've tried it before and it didn't work. We did that before and it didn't work. We've been down this path before and it didn't work. You get all the way to the end of the Old Testament and that's exactly what they're doing there in the third chapter of Malachi. The last prophet to speak and to write was Malachi before the 400 years of silence. And in Malachi chapter three, I want you just to listen to what God says to them. God's speaking to them and he says, you have said this, it is vain to serve God. Now God comes to him and tells him that. This is what you're saying. It doesn't pay to serve God. And what prophet is it that we have kept his charge? That's Malachi chapter three, verse 14. It's the same thing that we say. We get in situations in light. Listen, Peter said the same thing. You look over to Luke chapter 18 and Luke chapter 18, Peter's gonna say this to the Lord. He's gonna say it to Jesus Christ. Just listen to what he says right here. Luke chapter 18, verse 28, Peter said, Behold, we've left our homes, our jobs, my flat panel television, my master's tickets, my beach house, I've left all of that to follow you. And it's just isn't working out. This just isn't paying. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's not one of you that has left a house or a wife or a brother or a vacation or a job or a car or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in this world, in other words, and in the world to come, eternal life. We come back to what God said to Abraham right here and he said this. He said, your reward shall be very great. What's the reward? God. I had the privilege to get to know Dr. E.V. Hill before he passed. A great pastor from L.A. at the Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church. His wife had died and he remarried and, uh, Deb and I got to know his wife, wonderful lady, and he was just, man, he was just such a legend. And uh, he tells the story, he told us he, that President Reagan had offered him a position, which at that time would have made him the highest ranking African American ever in the government of the United States. Came to him and offered him a position and wanted him to take it, and he said, I've got to pray about it. And Dr. Hill talked about that. I remember him sitting there talking about that. He says, I, I just thought about all, all that I would have. I'd be, you know, I could make history for my people. I could, I could fly first class everywhere I went. I could, uh, I could, I could sleep in, the, in five-star hotels on silk sheets. He said, I could eat meals like I'd never eaten before. He said, I could buy suits that I could never afford before. He said, I'd have chauffeured limousines. I'd have an expense account that would never be monitored by anybody. He said, I could have the whole world was just laid out for me. And he said, I would not have to answer to anybody in government. He said, I would answer directly to the president of the United States. And he said in the middle of all of this, trying to decide what God was trying to call him to do and what he should do. And should he take that? And should he leave the ministry? And should he leave, you know, uh, Mount Zion and he said he had to fly to Albany uh, to preach, that he had a preaching engagement. He said he flew across the country to Albany, New York. He said he got there, and he said it was this old preacher that picked him up in an old car. He said it was just old, dilapidated. He said it broke down three or four times on the way to the preacher's house. He said the preacher lived way out in the country, did not put him up in the hotel, but took him way out in the country to his house and he said it started sleeting and then the sleet turned to snow and he said it broke down before we got to his house. He said, the, the only thing we could do was get out and just push it all the way on down to his house. He said, I got to his house and he said he didn't have facilities on the inside. He said, I had to go out in the snow if I needed to go to the restroom. And he said, that night, he said, I got into a rickety old bed. And he said, I covered up in that cold house as best I could. And he said, all I could think about was I am going to be staying in five-star hotels, sleeping on silk sheets, going out having prime rib every night to eat, chauffeured limousines, flying first class, all of this. He said, all of this. He said, Evie, all of this is going to be yours. And E.V. Hill said, I fell under the deepest conviction I have ever had in my life. And he said, no. I would not step down from what God called me to, even if it means answering to the president of the United States himself. He said, no. He said, Ed, he called himself Ed. He said, Ed, Your reward is God. Now, let me ask you something. If everything tonight just went kafooey and you lost it all, could you go out in these woods and sit on a stump and say, that's okay because I've got the best thing of all. I still got God. If you lose it all, everything that makes you comfortable, everything that brings you happiness, everything that gives you some joy in life. If you lost it all tonight, could you honestly sit down and say, my reward is God? Because it is. It is. I thought about that. Do I need a 10,000 seat auditorium? Do I need a an orchestra of thirty or forty people. Do I need a two hundred voice choir? Do I need an office complex that would be the size of this whole auditorium right here? Do I need all of that, or do I just need Jesus? He's my protection. We built a house in our first church out of seminary, and we had a we had two men in the church. One was a builder, and one was the a developer, and he had the land, and this one built the house, and they gave us a great deal. They helped two kids <laughs> with two babies, and uh, they helped us get started in life. God bless those two men, and um, we built a nice little house, nice little home. We had a nice deck out on the back of the house, and uh, one day I was home, and I, I don't know where Debbie and Courtney were, but, but Trey must have been about four years of age, and he was just playing on the deck. I was sitting there in the den. The door was there. And I could, I could hear him talking to somebody. And I thought, well, he must be another little boy, must have come up because we have a lot of kids in the neighborhood. Some other little boys coming up. And he was just talking. And he was just talking away. Just talking, just talking, just talking, just talking. And I couldn't understand what he was saying, but he was saying the same thing it sounded like to me. So I got up and I walked into the kitchen and uh, I was washing my hands and got a drink of water. And, I happened to look out the back and there was Trey hanging upside down, dangling upside down off the banister of the deck. And I thought, oh, Lord have mercy. And I flew out of the kitchen, ran through the den and out the back door. And I jumped and I grabbed him just about the time he was letting go. And I could hear finally what he was saying. He wasn't crying. He wasn't screaming. He wasn't saying it, but he was saying the same thing again and again. He'd been hanging there saying it. And what he was saying was, somebody help the boy. Somebody help the boy. Somebody help the boy. Somebody help. I want to tell you, when you're dangling upside down in the midst of a terror and a fear and a fright, you got somebody that'll help the boy. And his name is Jesus. Let's stand and pray about it. Now, I don't know what you're going through in your life, what you're facing, what things make you uncomfortable, nervous, a little frightful right now. You're uncomfortable. You're thinking to yourself, I'm not really sure how to handle a situation. I'm not sure what to do about this or that or the other. I want you right now just to listen. And the word of the Lord came to Abram, and he said, Do not be afraid. I am your shield, and I am your very great reward. God is going to take care of you. He says so in his word. Father, thank you for your word Thank you, Lord, that we can trust your word and we can trust you and that you hold every one of our lives in your hand and that you have built a hedge around us and that nothing can touch us but that it doesn't first pass through your caring hands. You know more about us than we know about ourselves. You know the number of our days, as well as the number of the hair on our head. You are a God who is most merciful and kind and long-suffering. And you are a God who says that you love us. This week shows us your love. I just pray, Father, that we would be satisfied with just you, with just you. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.